I wonder what your ambition in life is. As a child, mine was to join the military. I loved playing with Action Man as a young boy. I had an army uniform. I would spend all my pocket money in the famous army stores and buy old army equipment. I'd hide in the woods and I'd build dens. And it was my dream to reach the ripe old age of 13 so I could join the army cadets. When I turned 13, I joined the cadets and I enjoyed going on camp and wearing the uniform and dreaming about becoming 18 so I could join as an adult soldier. Then when I was 18, I applied to join the military police within the RAF. I failed my first entrance exam, but on my second attempt, I got in and I'd gone through all the stages. And then on my final stage, I was being interviewed by two officers. And they asked me, what is your ambition? Why do you want to join the Royal Air Force? My, my response was that I wanted to travel the world, that I would like to become a dog handler and that I would like to get promotion. And you going in without qualifications meant the highest I could get would be sergeant. So I'd set my heart on uh, spending several years in there and being a sergeant and then leaving and then joining the regular police. After explaining my ambitions, the, the interviewing officer told me that my ambitions were far too high. He said that I would probably never leave the UK. The furthest I would go would be Northern Ireland. He said that rather than being a dog handler, I would just remain being a basic military policeman because there's far too many applicants to be a dog handler. He also said that was easier than becoming a sergeant, that it'd be very unlikely that I'd become a sergeant. In fact, what he told me was, you're more likely to spend the rest of your career being a glorified security guard walking around a wet, anonymous backwater of the United Kingdom. <coughs> After he said that, he then said to me, do you still want to join the RAF? My response was, no chance, I'd rather work in McDonald's. And I withdrew my application. I was gutted, my, my ambitions had been shattered. The appeal of the RAF is instantly being removed. The dictionary describes ambition as being the strong desire to achieve success. And being a, a glorified security guard to me didn't seem like success. And I wonder, what are your ambitions in life this morning? What areas of your life do you hope to see success? Your education, your career, maybe you're looking for a promotion or a better paid job. What about relationally? Are you looking to have a, a better marriage or to be married? Are you wanting children? Are you wanting your, your children to do great things? What is it that you are looking for in your relationships within the church? What about your ministry? Do you desire a bigger church? Do you desire more baptisms, more conversions, a bigger platform or more recognition? What about your faith? What is your ambition for your personal walk with God? How do you see success as a Christian? To read your Bible more, to pray more and possibly even to tithe more? 
What should we see as success as Christians? What should be our ambition? Well, as always, whenever we want to know an answer to a question, the best place to go to is to God's word. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And as you do that, I will pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you will be with us, Lord, by your spirit, that you will challenge us, Lord, that you will equip us and you will make us more like your son, Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen. It starts off by saying, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Philippians is a, is a letter from the Apostle Paul written to the church in Philippi. He sent this letter while he was still in prison. He wrote this letter to, first of all, thank them for a gift that he'd received. But he also wanted them to be encouraged and to remain joyous in life and in death. Chapter 1 is... Uh, typical of Paul's letters, he starts off with an introduction and thanksgiving, but then he focuses on how the church should remain righteous, should remain holy, even in the face of opposition and persecution. Then if we look at the first two verses of chapter 2, we see him say, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. I used to be a, a prison chaplain. And when I was working with many of the lads, they would often get excited whenever they received a letter. Some would get excited if they got a food parcel or some new clothes sent. Others would be even more excited if they had a visit. But the most excited I saw these prisoners was when they got an early release date. If you were in prison, 
What would make you joyous? I know Rachel would like a, a file in a cake. A, because she likes cakes, and B, she'd want to escape. <laughs> but in this passage, we see that Paul is in prison. He's suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he's telling the church in Philippi and, and us today that his joy is made complete, not by a food parcel or by a visit, but by the church being united in love and spirit and mind. Paul is suffering, yet it's his desire and it's his ambition to see the church united in the gospel. Today we, we live in a culture of individualism and most of our decisions are a result of looking at what will benefit us personally rather than benefiting us all as a body of Christ. And Paul is reminding the church then and us that as Christians, we need to remain united and responsible for one another. And he gives us four reasons for this. He says that we should be united and responsible for one another because firstly, we are all in Christ. What a joy and what an encouragement it is to know that in Christ we are chosen, we are forgiven, we are adopted and we have an eternal fellowship with our saviour and one another. Secondly, he says that we share in the, the comfort and love that Jesus has for us. Thirdly, he says we're united with God and because of that, with each other through the Holy Spirit. Then finally, he says that we share the affection and mercy of our Saviour. As recipients of God's loving kindness, of God's mercy, and because we've experienced that unique love and kindness and mercy, it should excite us and want us to reflect and share that with one another. Paul is telling us that if we have experienced, if we meditate upon and if we praise Jesus for our salvation as believers, then we should find being of the same mind, of the same love and being in full accord and of one mind with one another, irresistible. On Saturday, we, we came up early before the start of the retreat and my friend's little boy was paddling in the stream up by the top cabins. It was absolutely freezing. And he was in there for about 10 minutes and he said, Mam, I'm cold and I'm wet, which is no big surprise. If we go around splashing in freezing cold rivers, we're going to get cold and wet. In a similar way, what Paul is saying is there's no other rational conclusion for us as Christians who've experienced the love and mercy of God but to be united with one another. Like the only logical conclusion for a little boy who is playing in a frozen stream is to get cold and wet. The only logical conclusion for the true church is that they will be united by the love, spirit and mind of God. And we need to ask ourselves this morning if, our relationships with other Christians are fractured. Does it make us sad? Does it cause us to pray? Does it cause us to pursue and seek the unity that brought Paul so much joy? 
because it should be our ambition as believers to be united in servant-hearted humility with Christ and one another. The next verses say, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul then goes on to say that nothing we do should ever be done out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition is when our motivation is because we want to gain something from what we do. It's when our actions will personally benefit ourselves regardless of how it affects other people. Paul also goes on to say that we should never do anything if our motivation comes from vain conceit. Vain conceit is what we saw in the garden with Adam and Eve when they weren't happy with the blessings of being God's children and they wanted to glorify themselves and be God in their own lives. Vain conceit is when we want to glorify ourselves make ourselves look better and be praised by others. So if we go back and, and look at my ambition to join the armed forces, you can see that was out of selfish ambition. I was motivated by vain conceit. Although travelling the world and doing the job that you enjoy and getting a promotion is a good thing, that should never have been my motivation. My priority for, for joining the armed forces should have been to serve my queen and country, not to serve myself by getting free holidays, doing a job I loved and getting paid well, while also having the, the pride of everyone uh, listening to my authority being a sergeant. If I hadn't have had selfish ambition, I might not have been put off joining, and I might have received those things as a blessing rather than it being a motivation. So to clarify, having ambition isn't a problem that Paul is addressing. Paul is addressing our selfish motivations and vain conceit behind our ambitions. And I wonder what does that mean for how we see our marriages, how we see our families or our ministry, even this retreat. Everything we do, our motivations can be born out of selfishness and vanity. We need to ask ourselves, are our ambitions born about a motivation to bless others or to bless ourselves? Are our motivations there to serve others or to be served? Are we motivated about what we want and how we can be served and what we get? Or motivated by giving and serving others. Because as Christians, our ambition should be to be united in servant-hearted humility with Christ and one another. This is why Paul explains further by telling us to humbly count ourselves, sorry, count others more significant than ourselves. And to not only look to our own interests, but to look to the interests of others. 
Many of us here might look at other people and see ourselves as insignificant. We might look at who they're related to, what college or university they went to. They might think about what church they belong to. They might look at their achievements, their gifts, their skills, even how they look. And then you might think that you are beneath them. You might think that you're not as good as them. That you are insignificant compared to them. Yet this isn't humility. This is insecurity. And it's a lack of understanding as your value as a child of God. It's a lack of understanding that you are a core heir with Christ, your saviour. Chosen, saved, loved and adopted. Insecurity has a similar root cause to the problem that Paul is discussing. But it has a different outcome and that outcome is pride. Pride is similar to insecurity in that it places its value in what the world sees as significant rather than what God does. Pride says that who we're related to, what church we belong to, the qualifications we have, the achievements, the gifts, the skills, and even how we look gives us value and makes us more significant than others. Pride means that we look down on others and prioritise our needs over those who we see less important than us. Paul is talking about a humility that comes from knowing that you are nothing without God and that you are fully reliant on him for all things. And the German theologian Augustus Nander says that this, this knowledge, once you have this knowledge that you are nothing without God, that you can do nothing with him, without him, sorry, should affect your behaviour towards your fellow man. For conscious of your entire dependence on God, for all your abilities, even as they are dependent on God for theirs, we will not pride ourselves on our abilities or exalt self in our conduct towards others. So in other words, what, what Paul is saying is the gospel is a leveller. It highlights how we are all equally reliant on God. It shows that every man, woman and child ever born is dependent on God for their existence, for their salvation, for every action they take, even every single breath that they have. So what Paul is saying is if we truly believe in the gospel, we will know we will have nothing to be big headed about. We will have no reason to think that we are superior than anyone else. And we will acknowledge our own weakness while showing grace for the weaknesses of others. In fact, not only is this a, an understanding, a, a remedy for pride, it's a remedy for insecurity. For when we understand the gospel and our total dependence on God, everyone's total need of God. We no longer have to feel intimidated or fearful of other people's gifts or skills. Because then we understand that their gifts are a result of the grace of God. And that we can celebrate their gifts rather than fear or covet them. This is what Paul means when he tells us to count others more significant than ourselves. 
He wants us to know that we should humbly acknowledge our own personal flaws whilst overlooking the flaws of others. Yet in that, we also need to confidently recognise and celebrate the grace of God at work in the lives and actions of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This passage has been a, a tough passage to look at. It's a tough ask to consider how everything we do will not only impact ourselves, but will impact our brothers and sisters in Christ. From what we study to where we study to getting married and having children to where we live, from what job we get to what church we go to, to when and where we go on holiday, to what worship songs we choose, to what tea and coffee we buy for after the service. Paul is asking us to consider everything we do. There's no caveats. Paul is telling us that whatever we do in our personal, family, work and church life, it must be done with the intention of benefiting others as well as ourselves. And the reason is because the Bible tells us that our ambition as believers should be to be united with Jesus in servant-hearted humility and to be united with one another. Many of us looking at this passage might see it as extreme. Many of us might see it as unrealistic. Some of us might even see it as possibly unfair. Why should we consider others? Especially when making decisions about our individual lives. Well, Paul quickly gets to that in the next verses. He uses a hymn to explain why we should do that. Verse 5 to 11 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is telling us that being united with Christ in servant humility and being united with one another, the church, is an obvious task. Yet the way he explains it, it almost comes across as an impossible task. In fact, it is impossible if we don't have our eyes set upon Jesus and what he's done for us. He's telling us that we need to have our eyes up on Jesus and his sacrifice. He's telling us that it's only when our ambition is to be united in servant-hearted humility with Christ that we can be united with one another. Ignoring people's bad habits doesn't help us become united. Giving people gifts and opening the door and letting people have the biggest slice of cake doesn't make us united. The only thing that can unite God's people 
is God himself. Paul tells us that we need to, to reflect the same mindset as Christ. To reflect that in our relationships with one another. The mindset which Jesus chose when having everything, when in glory he was worshipped as God the Son, the creator of heaven and earth. Eternally worshipped, eternally adored, eternally in glory. He chose humility instead of selfish ambition. He made himself nothing. He chose to swap his throne for life on earth. Not just as a human, but as a slave. He became human in order to live a life of perfection. A life of perfect obedience that every single man, woman and child has failed to live since the beginning of time. And he did this so that he could die as a perfect sacrifice. For us who were already slaves. Slaves to sin. Choosing selfish ambition. And choosing pride on a daily basis. Every day we were trying to take off our human likeness and become like God. Rejecting him and hating him. Yet he still chose to die in our place. Lovingly and mercifully paying the price that we owed. Rising three days later, defeating death and sin. Ascending to heaven. Exalted to the highest place. And then returning so that every knee will bow either in worship or in fear and judgment. Because he's coming back to judge and punish sinners for eternity in hell. And to rescue his church for eternity with him. Jesus will rescue his people. Jesus will rescue those who trust in his perfect salvation. Jesus will rescue those who, because of his grace, have an ambition to reflect that grace and that servant-hearted humility to one another. This passage is exciting. This passage is convicting and this passage is comforting. It excites us when we see the love and sacrifice of our saviour. And it convicts us when we see how badly we are at reflecting that. And then it comforts us by showing us that the more that we meditate on his grace, the better we will reflect it. It was Paul's ambition to reflect the mind of Christ. When he risked everything to plant churches and to support churches. We see the same in the early church. A church that reflected the mind of Christ as it was being persecuted and people were being martyred. We see the mind of Christ in the Reformation. We see the mind of Christ in the persecuted church today. Our brothers and sisters reflecting the servant-hearted, sacrificial mind of Jesus, putting him and the church above themselves, being killed, being imprisoned and being tortured for the faith. And we need to ask ourselves, are we seeing the mind of Christ in the church today, in the UK church, in our church? Are we seeing it in our own lives, in our own relationships, in our marriages, in our families and in our friendships and in our church?
And ambition is something that you don't yet have, but long for. And ambition is something that we don't have, but we aim towards. So this morning, why don't we join Paul and one another in making it our ambition to have the mind of Christ in our relationships to be united with him and with one another. Let's close in prayer. <coughs> Father, we just think of everything you sacrificed, Lord. That glory. I can only imagine <coughs> your throne room of grace. The angels before you, Lord. How beautiful that must be, and yet you give that up to become a man and to become a slave and to die in our place. Father, remind us daily of that sacrifice. Let us not come complacent with that gospel story. Help us meditate on the glory that you left behind, Lord. And remind us that whatever we think is glory on this earth is temporary rubbish. And that we have that eternal, eternal glory to share with you. Help us, Lord, to remove any selfish ambition and vain conceit. But give thanks when we fail, knowing that you've done it perfect. Be with us, Lord. Unite us with our families and our friends and our churches. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.